Well, good evening. Am I on? Yes. Um, first of all, I'd like to say I'm no preacher. My last job, I was a lecturer, so as a lecturer, I'll give you a lecture, and as a lecturer, I may ask you some questions, which are not rhetorical questions I expect you to answer with gusto. We'll see. At Easter, I had the responsibility of taking the service on that occasion, and I felt I really wanted to look at the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and gain something fresh out of it. And uh, you can do this a number of ways. You can look at the, the historical events as recorded in the Gospels, uh, just quite interesting and quite informative, slotting it all together. You can certainly look at the prophecies going running from Genesis right the way through to Malachi, and even books like Ruth, where it talks about Boaz as the kingsman, kingsman redeemer. Uh, it has an indication of who Jesus is. But, uh, and there's one particular prophecy I just want to mention before I go into my main subject. I was looking um, at the death of Jesus in John's Gospel, and I came across a little passage, this one here, which says, Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that Scripture will be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so he soaked and sponged it, put the sponge on the stalk of the, of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And it goes on just a little bit. When he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This really struck me because Jesus is dying on the cross, about to give up his spirit. He must say to himself, there's one more prophecy that's got to be fulfilled before I can actually die. I've got to ask for a drink because I'm thirsty. Strange, isn't it? And the actual passage of scripture he is referring to is this one, Psalm 69, verse 21. They put gall in my food and gave vinegar for my thirst. Now when Jesus was about to be nailed to the cross, they gave him gall. Gall, it could be hemlock, it could, not quite sure what it could be, but it certainly would be something which would deaden the pain of being crucified. And the moment Jesus tasted it, he refused to touch it. He felt he had to go to the cross bearing the full pain of what the crucifixion was. And it made me think a little bit because sin came into the world because Satan tempted Adam and Eve saying, there's nothing wrong with this fruit, it's a lovely fruit, and if you eat it, you'll be like God. So sin came into the world. And I just have that sneaking suspicion that maybe Satan was here saying to Jesus, take this gall, it'll take some of the pain away. Because if Jesus did that, he could not bear the sin, the punishment of the sin of all of mankind if he deadened it just by one iota. That's my own interpretation, but I just feel that could be what's going on here. And then at the after, when he is dying, he asks, he says, I'm thirsty, and they give him vinegar. It was sour vinegar. There wasn't even a modicum of comfort in giving him something worthwhile to drink. Sour vinegar. And he drank that and gave up his spirit. There was even cruelty in there, in giving them that, but not even a decent glass of wine, vinegar. 
But then they were cruel people because if he hadn't have died, they'd have broken his legs just to make it more painful so he couldn't breathe and be suffering in pain. But even then, when he was dead, they had to shove a spear right up through his lungs and through his heart to make sure he was dead. And if anyone says, well, maybe he fainted and he was revived, I tell you this, the Romans knew how to kill people and they knew who dead people were, certainly. Jesus was certainly dead. So I just made that in passing. What my main talk about is I want to look at Jesus' death and resurrection in terms of the Jewish feast as recorded in Leviticus 23. This is a Jewish calendar. I hope this works. Up the top there, there's a little red spot somewhere. Where's it gone? Well, up the top, 12 o'clock is... I'll come down here and speak. Down at 12 o'clock, there is one Nisan. That is the start of the new year as in Scripture. And really, that is controlling the seasons of the, the, the year. We then progress, and there are 12 months. 12 months. And they each are really lunar months. 29 and a half days is the actual lunar month. But in actual fact, what they did was, every odd month they made 30 days, and the even months they made 29. So when you add that up, you get a total of 354 days in a year. That's a bit of a problem, isn't it? Because we have how many? And a quarter. Okay? So what they did was every now and again, just in front of the month of Adar, where you see Purim, they introduced Adar 1, that became Adar 2. Another month to compensate for the loss of days over a period of time. But anyway, I want to go on to... The other thing is I want to mention, of course, is besides the month being a rather strange one, so were their days. What day is it in, in the Jewish calendar now? It's Monday. Because at sundown, the days changed. Sundown, the days changed. So it's now Monday. We're a couple of hours into Monday, or... In, in, if we were lower south, it would be, because it's more or less six o'clock. And it's worthwhile remembering that, because that, you, you can then work out why they chose Friday to Sunday is a bit haywire. But I'm not going to go into that this time. I've done that many times before. We then go to the middle of Nissan, where we celebrate two important festivals, Passover, which remembers the, when the, the angel of death came over the people and where the doors were daubed with the blood of the lamb, he passed over them, but then where the, there was no blood, the eldest child or eldest person was died. Then we had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which reminds us that when the Jews, they had to leave Egypt quickly, they didn't have time to put leaven in the, yeast in their bread, and consequently they had unleavened bread. Then was remind them of that. We then go around to the Festival of Weeks, also known as Shavuot, which is where they remember the law being given to Moses. We then move on quite a considerable bit, almost six months, to the second new year. This is the important new year, the, the first of Tishri. is a very, it's the new year, and that's when the, the year number changes in Jewish calendar. At the moment, we're in year 5777. Do you know what year that is, where it's based from? Since creation, okay? And it's, it starts off with the Festival of Trumpets. The Festival of Trumpets can also be related, is also sometimes related to the second coming of our Lord, because when the Lord comes again, there will be the sound of a trumpet. 
And if you look a bit further on towards Tabernacles, that is a feast where they remember the great harvest. And when the Lord comes a second time, there's going to be a great harvest of people taken up with him into heaven. In the middle is atonement, sometimes called Yom Kippur. How many of you remember Yom Kippur in recent days? There was a battle, wasn't there, on Yom Kippur, where the Egyptians and the Syrians attacked Israel at the same time. There were two other festivals, just to mention in passing, um, Hanukkah and Purim. Hanukkah is remembering the revolt of the Maccabees against the Greek uh, rulers of Israel at that time. And because of that uprising, a family called the Hasmoneans came into power. And the greatest of the Hasmoneans, you all know, is Herod the Great. The second festival there, Purim, is where the Jews remember the story of Esther, where this young Jewish queen of the Persian emperor, through her, her, uh, what she did, enabled the Jews to, to um, miss the sacrifice or get away from the, sacri- the, the slaughter planned by Haman against the Jews. So those are two extra feasts. But the other feasts there mentioned are all mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23. We're going to start off by looking at the Feast of Trumpets. We'll start in the new year of the Jewish calendar, the, the second of the new years. This is a shofar a ram's horn, and it has cartilage in, they they knock the cartilage out, they drill holes in and shape the ends, and they make wonderful sounds on them. They're normally sheep or ram's horns, but sometimes they are a little bit larger, such as this one. An antelope. Many of you have seen films like uh, The White Feather or films about the Boer War. You've seen where trumpeters blow and the soldiers gather around in the square or they break ranks and go and attack. Well, the Jews used the trumpet in exactly the same way and very often it was there, pay attention, something important is going to happen. Following the festival of the Feast of Trumpets, there is a ten-day period known as the Days of Awe. And during these period of days of awe, they believed that God wrote people's names in either a book of life or a book of death. And what they did during those tens of awe could get God to change his mind as to which book they ended up in. They could do that by worshipping, by praying, and also by charity and also reconciliation. And during this time, they would seek reconciliation for things they'd done wrong against their neighbours or friends, put things right. And at the end of the days of all, the books were sealed. And then they come to the greatest day in the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Ten days after the Feast of Trumpets. 
This is the time when the high priest would go in and offer a sacrifice, first of all on his own behalf, and then on behalf of the children of Israel as a nation. He would normally be dressed in his priestly garments, beautiful surplus blue with a blue turban and a gold band which said, Holy unto the Lord. He wore like a waistcoat with a breastplate on it. On that breastplate were 12 precious stones, each one engraved with the names of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And on his shoulders there would be two more precious stones on which was engraved six of the names of the tribes of Israel. And in the pouch of the breastplate there'd be two precious stones called the Umin and Thumin, which he would use to decide what God's will was for the people. But on this day, this greatest day in the, in the whole of the Jewish year, he would go into the outer room and he would take off his clothes, these robes, he would bathe, and then he would put on plain white garments, such as the person behind. Simple white garments. Remember, our Lord Jesus Christ also had to divest himself of his glory when he left heaven to become a man. The high priest would then be given two goats, and he would cast lots upon the goats, one to be a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, and the other to be a scapegoat, which would be released into the desert. He would then slaughter a bull, or bullock. That would be the offering for his, himself and his family, for the sin of himself and his family. Once that had taken place, he would then go into the Holy of Holies. The, he would enter into the holy place where there was the showbread and the candlestick and so on, but then ahead of him was a curtain, and beyond that curtain was the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where God dwelt, in which was kept the Ark of the Covenant. He would go take with him a pan of embers, hot embers, and a censer of incense. He would then go back out of the Holy of Holies into the holy place and take a basin which contained the blood of the bullock that had been sacrificed. He would then come back into the Holy of Holies and with his finger sprinkle blood on the mercy seat which was above the Ark of the Covenant which contained the law. Very useful to remember that mercy is above law. When he did that, he would then go out again and get the blood of the goat that had been slain and repeat the process, this time on behalf of the people he represented. During the year, the whole tabernacle had been tainted with sin because sinful priests were going in and out, so that had to be cleansed as well. So the blood of the bull and the goat would be mixed together, and the priests would go around and sprinkle blood on the, the showbread altar, on the, um, tab- the, the, the candlestick, and any other of the furniture within the holy place, making it cleansed. He would then go out, take off his robes, get washed again, and put on his official high priestly robes. And when the people saw him come out, they knew their sins had been forgiven for just one more year. 
because they had to go through exactly the same ritual in one year's time. I did neglect to mention one thing. The priest, only the high priest, went into the tabernacle at this time. No other priest was there. He only had to go in to offer the sacrifice, the blood. And Jesus, only him, could go in and offer his own self as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. God found the sins of the people and the high priest such an abomination he would not allow the carcasses of the bullock or the goat to be slaughtered in the tabernacle area. They had to produce another altar outside the camp where the bullock and the goat were burned. At the same time, the scapegoat was released to go out into the wilderness, to wander in the wilderness. He may die there, we don't know what actually happened to him, but it was like taking the sins of the people out of the camp. We talk about our sins are being taken away from us as far as the east is from the west. This was a similar concept. Jesus was crucified outside the city. There's that lovely hymn, isn't there? There is a green hill far away, outside the city wall, where our dear Lord was crucified, who died to save us all. Just think, the priest's offering, the bullock and the goat, was such an abomination to God, they had to be burnt outside the camp. That was just one year's group of sins for one small group of people. Jesus was carrying the sins of everybody who has ever lived, is living and will live. And he had to be crucified outside the city wall. When the priests came out and the people saw him, they were standing at their the flaps of their tents watching, when they saw him come out, they would be happy because they knew their sins had been forgiven for that year. And they would rejoice and make merry. In fact, some of them made so much merry, they most have to remember that sin for the next year's quota. But the writer of the Hebrews sums it up very nicely for us. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through a greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. What a wonderful set of words that is. The high priest was only able to do it once a year. It's the only time he went to the holy place. One day in one year. Jesus went into the heaven itself with his sacrifice and, and it's for all time. And I tell you this, if the Jews ever get hold of the temple area again, I'm sure they will start sacrificial systems again. But there's a pretty rare chance of that happening because what's on the, the mount now? A mosque. We now move on to the tabernacles. This is where they did some of their feasting in thanks for what God had done in, in forgiving their sins of the past year. But it's also to remember the time they dwelt in the desert where God provided for them. He provided uh, manna, he provided water, he provided quail. The clothes did not wear out, their sandals did not wear out. God provided them for that 40 years in the wilderness in every possible way. And they spent time rejoicing about that. They'd feast together 
So I missed that one. Yes, where's it gone? That's it. A picture of them feasting together. Invite each other to diff- uh, each other's families to different booths and share meals together. Rejoice on the God's goodness to them, not only in the desert but also in forgiving their sins. Remember, this period is a time also of the last great harvest, the great ingathering, and I believe that that, is a, that hasn't happened yet as far as the New Testament is concerned. I believe it's a, uh, it could be representing the gathering of the whole church when Christ comes again to take the church unto himself. Just spend a moment on Passover. I'm sure we're all familiar with Passover in relationship to the sacrifice of Christ. Just that he's the Lamb of God that's shed his blood so that we could be forgiven. And remember that concept, he, was, he celebrated Passover just before he was executed. But I want to move on to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I remember I told you earlier on, it's when they left Egypt very quickly, they didn't have time to allow the yeast to go in the bread to rise, they had to produce virtually flat bread. But at the end of that ceremony, there was a particular feast. It's where a sheaf of barley, the first fruit of barley, was brought to the priest and waved in front of the people. So it says, speak to the Israelites, this is part of Leviticus 23, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land I'm going to give you and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. It was barley. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. There's a sheaf. It was waved. What's the day after the Sabbath? Sunday. Yeah. When did Jesus rise from the dead? Sunday. And Paul picks up this theme in his letter to the Corinthians. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, when he comes, those who belong to him. So Jesus is the firstfruit of those who are resurrected. But there's something strange happens in the middle of Matthew's account, which is worth looking at. I spoke to Ian about this, didn't I, just a few days ago. Because it talks about the things that happened when Jesus actually died on the cross. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. This is the curtain which separated the, mo- the holy place from the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was torn from top to bottom. It was indicating we have access to God, but it also indicates more than that, because what was on that curtain? Does anyone know what was on that curtain? Cherubim and seraphim. Angelic beings. And can you remember where there was an angelic being in the creation story? Pardon? Right, there was a, he had a sword, he stopped them getting back into the Garden of Eden, stopping them have, having access to what? The Tree of Life. So you see the significance here, that God, the, the, temp, the, the curtain in the temple tearing gave access to God, but also gave us access to eternal life. 
But then he goes on, the earth shook and rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who died were raised to life. Who had died, sorry, raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now, they were resurrected before Jesus was. So how can Jesus be the first fruit? Well, in actual fact, it's quite simple because Jesus is the first fruit of those who are resurrected to eternal life. These people were resurrected, but they died again. Just as um, Lazarus died again, and the, the son, who, the widow with the son, he died again. Uh, Tabitha died again. These died also. Jesus is the first of those who are raised to eternal life. And we will follow him at the right juncture. So, I hope there's a few new thoughts about the resurrection and death of Jesus Christ. Looking at the Old Testament festivals, they are basically just pictures of what Jesus was to accomplish. And we say, he is risen, hallelujah indeed. Hallelujah. Thank you, Katie.